turn to Acts chapter 15. Now, in earlier centuries, there were theological debates or controversies that would happen. Some people would say, well, the scriptures, they say this. And then other people would come around and say, no, the scriptures would say this. And so how they would decide what the scriptures were actually saying, where they would get everybody together and they would come together in what we know as a council. This council of church leaders would gather all around and discuss these key theological debates. Now imagine back then, you couldn't just send a text message or an email, say, hey, be here in a couple weeks. They couldn't do that, and so they had to write letters and get word to people. And sometimes these debates weren't solved for months or even years. But many of them finally were when they gathered in councils. Some of us may be familiar with some of the councils. For instance, this is the first council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, there was a debate of, is Jesus truly God? And they got together in this council, and they decided, yes, he is. And that led to the Nicene Creed that many of us still recite to this day. Or we get to AD 381, and we have the first council of Constantinople. Say that a couple times. Improve the language on the Trinity, meaning we see that God is three in one. How do we define that? How do we make sure that this is exactly what the Bible says and are unified in that? So that happened at this council. Or we look at the Council of Ephesus. At this council, this is a time where we wanted to decide on the personhood of Jesus, his manhood, and also is there truly original sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3? So many different councils along the years would get together and solve these huge theological debates. But these councils weren't new in the, th the, th uh, the fourth and fifth centuries. We, we saw this actually happen in the first century. In fact, the first council that we ever see is the Council of Jerusalem. And that happens in AD 50, and we see that happening in Acts 15. So I want you to turn to Acts 15, and we're at a point where we're a little over halfway through the book of Acts, and we've really hit a turning point in Acts. In fact, for the first 14 weeks in our series artwork, it was black with white lettering. We wanted to change it on your welcome programs and even on the screen as a symbol of things are starting to change a little bit in the church. And we're going to see that happening in Acts chapter 15. Now, before we get there, I want to begin just at the end of Acts chapter 14, because we need to understand exactly what's happening in Acts 15. So here is supposed to be on the screen. It's not. I'll read it for you. <laughs> it says, Acts 14, 27 through 28. Here's what it says. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there for, with the believers for a long time. And so we read at the end of chapter 14, great news. These Gentiles, which are just non-Jews, they're coming to faith in Jesus. And the church is growing. It's spreading like wildfire. And we should be able to rejoice in that and continue to press into the mission of Christ, right? Everything's good. Well, not really, because we get to chapter 15, verse 1, and here's what it says. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers this, unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, 
you cannot be saved. We are going to be talking about circumcision today. I don't think I have to give you a health lesson on what that is. If it is, you should just Google that because I'm not going into that today. It's so funny. We joke at, at our family, or our uh, weekend experience team, we, we gather on Tuesdays, we plan and we pray for the services and we always look at, okay, it's fifth Sunday or we're gathering with kids. What's the topic? It is always sex or circumcision or something crazy like that. It just ends up being like this. But, but this topic, it's as if these leaders are coming in and, and saying, hey, did you read the fine print? How many of us, when we're signing a contract or we're agreeing to something, do we read every word of the fine print? Some of you maybe do. <laughs> I don't think I ever have. And then yet we're surprised when something changes, right? Like we sign up for, let's say, a gym membership. And you're like, oh, yeah, $9.99, I can do that. And then all of a sudden you look at your bill and it's $38.99 and you didn't read the fine print that says, oh, by the way, $9.99 was the first month. We wanted to get you to sign up. Or have you ever watched on TV they're selling a drug to cure whatever that could be? Let's say that uh, someone is struggling with some heart palpitations and this medicine is going to help with those. And you're like, oh, man, if I have heart palpitations, I, I probably should go to my doctor and start this new medicine. And then as you're watching this person ride a bike and go swimming and see him living his best life, the person then starts to, like, read really fast the fine print of the medicine. Like, hey, by the way, it's going to help with your heart palpitations, but if you take this medicine, you may lose a limb, you may end up dying, you may end up, you know, like, holy smokes, but that's the fine print of medicine. If you don't read it all, you can't be upset if something happens. I was looking up some stories of how people got caught with fine print, and because they didn't read it, something negative happened. One company said, if you agree to this, Read the fine print so you read it and embedded in there, it said, and also if you have a son, we want your eldest son to be dedicated to us for the rest of their life. And because people didn't read it, they just clicked, I agree. Or Van Halen, they were traveling around and they had this heavy equipment and wanted to make sure that those who were hosting them at various venues would read the fine print. And in it, it would say, we want M&Ms, and they have to be all green, and we want all the brown ones especially picked out. And so when they would go to their dressing room, if they saw brown M&Ms, they realized they didn't read the fine print. Or there's another company who literally wrote in the fine print, if you read this and you're the first one to catch this, we will give you $10,000. This one woman actually read all the fine print. She was the only one, and she received $10,000. See, you should read the fine print. Well, back then, when we're thinking about Jesus, and we're thinking about how do we come to faith in Jesus? How do we know God? How do we have a relationship with God? It's a question that we ask ourselves now. It's a question that they debated back then. How do we know Jesus? And again, look at verse 15, verse 1 again. It says, if you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, then you can be saved. And without it, you can't be saved. And a weird thing of circumcision, you're thinking, why circumcision? Well, back then, those who were Jews, men circumcised themselves to identify as being a Jew. It was a weird thing to do. I don't know how they figured all that out, and I don't even want to go there, but that was a part of following the law of Moses. And that's, and that's what they're saying. Look, we believe in Jesus. We believe he died on the cross. We believe he rose again, but because we're Jewish as well, 
We need to adhere to the law of Moses, and part of that is being circumcised. Well, these Gentile believers, these were non-Jews who had no idea about the law of Moses, who had no idea this was part of being a Jew, started to hear this from these leaders, and they're thinking, what do you mean? I thought it was to just put my faith in Jesus alone. Well, these people come to Barnabas and they come to Paul. Look what happens in verse 2. It says, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing, arguing, arguing vehemently. You may read that and say, well, Christians aren't supposed to fight. And you're right, but there's also things that we have to fight about. In other words, we don't go and become argumentative, but if the Bible says something certain, and some other people come along and say that's not what the Bible says or this is what the Bible says, then it's okay to fight for those things. And Paul and Barnabas, they're fighting for this because it's not true. There's no fine print when it comes to God. You don't have to read the fine. Oh, it says circumcision. Okay, I need to do that. Oh, I have to follow this part of the law. I have to do that. No. Paul and Barnabas said, no, it's in Jesus alone. Well, look what happens. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question, the question of how do we be saved? How do we know Jesus? How do we have a relationship with God? Well, in verse 3, it says, the church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. I love that. Here comes Paul and Barnabas. They continue to talk about what Jesus is doing all around in the nations. Those who are Gentiles, who are non-Jews, they're coming to faith. It's a great time of celebration, a great time of joy. Until our friends come back. These Judaizers who are still Jewish, when it comes to adhering to the law, they believe in Jesus, but they still think you have to do something more in order to have a relationship with Jesus. So look what happens here. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul, they were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. Everything's great. They reported everything God had done through them. And then it says the Gentile converts, they must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So again, here they come and they say, look, the argument is settled. If you know Jesus, that's partly how you can be saved, but everyone needs to follow the law of Moses. Now let me tell you, these people were sincere. They didn't want to give up their whole family tradition. They didn't want to give up all that they knew about God because they thought in order to have a relationship with God, you would adhere to this law. And so they were discouraged by that. But here comes the council of Jerusalem. And we see this in verse 6. So the apostles and the elders, they met together to resolve this issue. So they brought this council in Jerusalem together in AD 50. And along with the core leaders of the church, you're going to see how does one truly have a relationship with Jesus? Is it true that it's just by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or is it, yes, you believe in Jesus but you must do something in addition to that in order to have a relationship with God. You have one side that says this. You have this side saying this. What is true? Well, we're going to hear from four individuals. Probably many of the leaders spoke up, but we first 
hear from Peter. Peter, one of the most known leaders in the church, as we go on in verse 7. After the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Now, Peter did not always believe this. If you read all the way through Acts chapter 9, he never thought that Gentiles or non-Jews would be accepted into God's people. But then he has this incredible eye-opening experience with Cornelius. Remember how we talked about Cornelius a few weeks back? Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter comes in contact with him, and he says this incredible line. He says, now I see for the first time ever that God does not show favoritism. For Peter's whole life, even though he walked with Jesus, he thought that the Jews were God's favorite and that the Jews were the only one allowed to worship God. And Peter has this experience with Cornelius and with the Gentiles, and now he believes it's not about how you were born. It doesn't matter what rules you followed. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. At the end of the day, what matters is faith. Faith in Jesus, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. That's what counts. Peter, he, he goes on here in verse 9, he says, he made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Verse 10. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? That is fascinating. So a yoke was this huge, heavy, wooden contraption that farmers would put over two animals side by side. They would attach it to a cart, and they would use it for farming. This was the pre-deer days where they didn't have tractors, but they had animals. And this heavy burden was put upon these two animals to share. That was called a yoke. Well, Peter says, wait a minute here. Why are you putting this heavy burden on people. A heavy burden that is weighing them down, a heavy burden that you're saying they have to carry alone, a heavy burden that says that people must follow the law of Moses in its entirety, perfectly. Why are you saying that? Because you know, just as well as I know, that none of us can follow the law perfectly. None of us can follow this law in its entirety. So why are you telling other people to do that? It's not about the law and following it. Do you know what the law's purpose is, Peter would say? The law and its purpose is to point people to a savior. It's to show people, this is so heavy, I can't do all of these things to know God. I need someone that can do it on my behalf. I need someone outside of me, God himself, to bear the burden. Because I can't take that on. And that is why when you're reading the Gospels, what does Jesus say? My yoke is what? Easy. Attach yourself to me. You get in one, I'll get in the other. And I'll pull the weight. 
I'll take all the weight on. It's going to be light and easy for you. Jesus, he bared the weight for us. He told us, this is how you know who God is through me. That's what Peter had to say. This brings us then, after Peter says this, he says, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Undeserved grace means a gift. Can you earn a gift? No, because if you earn a gift, it nullifies it being a gift. You can only receive salvation. You can only receive a relationship with God, not by mutilating yourself, not by doing good things, not by obeying the law. It's by saying, I am open to what you have for me, God. And that comes through relationship and belief with Jesus. That's Peter's words at this council. So he sits down and everyone's listening to him. And Paul and Barnabas, they stand up and they share this. Acts 15, verse 12. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So again, they stand and say, look, I know some of you think you need to be Jewish or adhere to the law to know God. I'm just telling you, as we've gone around from city to city and town to town, these non-Jews who have never obeyed anything of the law, they know nothing of it, they are coming to faith in Christ miraculously. God wants them just as much as he wants those who are Jewish. And people would have rejoiced. And I wonder, as Paul is speaking, we don't have these words in this council, but I wonder if Paul's thinking about what he wrote to the Galatians. In Galatians, that letter that we read in the New Testament is all about Paul saying, Jesus alone, nothing else. It's all about belief in Jesus alone. In fact, he says this in Galatians. Um, sorry, I'm, man, it, my PowerPoint is way off today. Let me read it to you. Sorry. Here's what it says in Galatians 5, verse 6. It says, For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit of being circumcised or not being circumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Let me read that one more time. When we place our faith in Jesus, the most important thing, Paul says, is not about what you've done or what you haven't done. What is important, the most important thing about faith in Jesus is it expressing itself in love. Let me pause there just to ask you, what's the most important part about your faith? If people knew that were, you were a Christ follower and they looked at your life, would they say, that is exactly what I see in this person? Faith expressing itself in love. Or would we make it hard for people to know about Jesus? If we had faith in Jesus and then we expressed it by, you need to follow these rules, you have to follow these beliefs, or you have to believe in this political party, or you have to know this or do this, would people be like, ah, that's heavy. That's a heavy yoke you're putting on me. I can't do all of those things. That's why Paul says it's not about what you do. It's about what you believe in and how that lives itself out in people's lives. Faith expressing itself in love. James, he stands up. He's the leader of the council, and James used to not believe in Jesus, but now he is a believer in Jesus, which is kind of awkward because James is Jesus' half-brother. 
So James wanted nothing to do with Jesus for a long time because who wants to grow up in a family with Jesus? That's kind of hard because he's perfect and you're not. But here's James. He finally sees the resurrected Jesus. He puts his faith in him and is now known as a servant of Christ when you read his letter in James. And he says this in verses 13 through 15. He says, when they had finished James, he stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. And then we see in Acts 15, 16 through 18, he quotes Amos 9. Amos 9 is a prophecy declaring that, hey, someday Jews and Gentiles, they will be united together. You should go read it. It's fascinating. And then after that, James, he just drops the mic. He says this. So here's my judgment as the leader of the council, after listening to everybody and interacting with Jesus himself. My judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that. One of the most important councils ever to happen amongst the faith, a turning point in the church, Jews who believed in Jesus versus those who believed in Jesus and didn't have any Jewish background. What do we do? And James, he says, it's not about what you do. It's about putting your faith in Jesus. It should not be difficult. It should be an incredible opportunity. And are you presenting it in that way? I think if Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James were here and they concised it into one statement, it would be this. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace is the gift. How do we receive the gift? Faith is the means by which we do that. And the object of our faith is Jesus himself. It's a gift that you receive. You don't have to do anything crazy to your body. You don't have to obey the law. You don't have to do anything because Jesus obeyed it perfectly. And if you believe in Jesus, he gives you a burden. It's not heavy. It is light. And he will take that for you and from you. And all you have to do is attach yourself to him at the yoke and he will journey with you right next to you. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ray Pritchard, maybe you've heard the book. He's an author. He wrote a book called An Anchor for the Soul. And he asks a question that's interesting in the book. He says, what would heaven be like if you had to earn your way there? If you went to heaven and like the whole parable goes, you get there and Peter meets you at the pearly gates and he, asks you why you should be there, and you go on and on and why you should, and he says, okay, you may come in. How would that look practically? Well, it gives this example of, just say that you are one of those people who decide to go to one of those political dinners to sit and hear from your favorite candidate, but of course, that's going to cost you. And let's just say that this meal costs you $500 to get through the door. And you're, you're gathered around with other people and, and you're catching up, excited for this meal to happen. And you say, yeah, I spent $500 to come here. And then the other person's like, 500? That's all you got? I gave 1,000 to our candidate. And then you walk around again and this person says to you, oh, only 1,000? 5,000 here kind of sticks up his nose to you, walks away. You're like, holy smokes. Well, that person that gave 5,000, he goes up to somebody else and says, 5,000? 
cutting back on expenses there, Georgie boy? I gave 10000 I mean, it is just so arrogant, and it just drips with pride. Imagine if you went to heaven, and you walked around, and you said, yeah, how, how did you get here? You're like, well, I was baptized, and I gave a lot to the church, and I served every week. And then you walked into someone else, and you're like, you only served once a week? Well, our pastor said to serve three times a week, and I served four. How about that? And then you walked around again, and they said, well, I belong to this political party, and because they believe this, I voted this way because of God. Well, I believe this about this political party, and I voted this way because they believe this about God. And you go from person to person to person to person, and all they do is brag about what they've done. To me, that doesn't sound like heaven. That sounds like hell. Isn't that what hell is all about? People that say, you know what, God? I don't really want anything to do with you. I'll do it on my own. I don't need you to get me into heaven. I can do that on my own. That's what hell is filled with. People who said to God, not thy will be done, but my will be done. It's all dripping in pride and arrogance. None of us, none of us, especially me, who is a pastor, who has a theological degree, who knows the original language of the New Testament. I can't walk around and say, I know this, I know this, and I know this, therefore I'm better than you. Or I should lay that burden on somebody else. You didn't read the Bible today? Well, I did. I'm a better Christian than you. When we read Acts 15, it's not by what you do that matters. It's by what Jesus has done for you that matters. Tim Keller says, Jesus has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. I am so grateful that I don't have to pull myself out of a hole and then do really good things for the rest of my life. Because if I did that in order to earn a relationship with God, my whole relationship with God would be based on insecurity and fear. Because I'm just telling you, before I came to know Christ as a 17-year-old kid, if I were to tell you stories of who I was pre-Jesus, some of you would probably get up and leave. I mean, that's how nasty of a person I was, how sad I was, how depressed I was, how insecure I was, so I had to take it out on other people. I'm still in counseling this day because of some of the things that I've done even before I was a Christ follower, just to find my satisfaction and joy and hope in Christ alone today, but it's hard to erase all those things. I could never outdo that, and neither can you. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how good you do. Those things are great, but those things are not the way to get into heaven. Some of you grew up in a faith where you were just told you had to do this, you had to attend church here, you had to read the Bible here, and you walked away from the faith, not because you didn't believe in Jesus, but because the yoke was so heavy, you couldn't bear it anymore. And for you, if it meant walking away from Jesus so you could receive freedom, you did it. But somehow God has brought you back to show you that freedom in Christ isn't about what you do. It's about who you are in him. That's the freedom of Christ. Are we exuding that? Are people around us as Christians, I mean, that person is expressing his faith or her faith in love. It's not about what you do. It's about knowing him and him making a way. And so as we move forward, I want to just give you two quick things for you to do. And the first one is just to rest and to celebrate all that God has done by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
One of my favorite stories of all time is about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is at a British conference on comparative religions, and all these people are sitting around debating Buddhism and debating Christianity and debating um, all of these different faiths. Uh, um, I can't even think of all of them right now, but all the different faiths that we see out there, Islam and all those different things, and they're debating, is there something that unifies all of these religions? And they're trying to figure it out. And then they talk about what makes one religion distinct from other religions. And so they're debating and they couldn't figure it out. Like most religions say you have to do something. Most religions say their God is involved somehow in, in normal life. How do we know for sure that there's a uniqueness in one religion amongst the others? C.S. Lewis, he walks into the room and he can just see the debate happening. And he walks in and he goes, what are you debating about? And he said, they said to him, well, we're trying to figure out what makes one um, faith unique from other faiths, but we can't figure it out. And C.S. Lewis says, oh yeah, I'll give you one word that separates Christianity from all other faiths. It's just one word. It's grace. It's grace. You study any religion, any philosophy in life, it is going to be all about what can I do? Here's the ladder. How can I climb it to reach the top? With Jesus, the ladder was there. Jesus climbed down it. He took the ladder and he put it down. He said, no more ladder. To come to a relationship with God with me, it's by grace, which is a gift. I'm here just to give it to you. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if for those of you who know Jesus, the second aspect is just as important. What is most important about faith is expressing itself through love. Do people feel the unconditional love and acceptance of God through the way that you express your faith in your everyday life? Would people walk away having a better view of this unconditional loving God or a worse view of this unconditionally loving God based upon how it's lived out in your life. God's not going to come down with a speaker and say, here I am, believe in me, but he will use us as his microphones, as his speakers to express our faith in him. Are you expressing your faith in Christ with love? How I want to end our time together is by praying and if you're here today and you would say, man, I just have been living my faith, Jesus plus something else, I just ask that you would repent of that this morning. You would say, sorry, God, that I am trying to come to you by other means other than just faith alone. It's not about anything else. Take some time to say sorry. And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to pray for you and I would love, I'll be up here afterwards, I would love to, well, to introduce you to this God that has no conditions other than receiving his son through a gift of salvation. So let's pray together. Lord, I just pray for those in this room who are getting so bogged down in what we need to do in order to have a relationship with you. Sure, we believe in Jesus, but there's this. And what we see in the text today, there's no other buts or ands. It's grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. So God, free us so that we can express our faith and love so other people would want to know you. And to those in here who maybe have thought having a relationship with you is all about what we should do, we don't feel worthy enough and therefore we've given up on you, God, I pray that today they would see you 
through new eyes. I pray, Lord Jesus, that those in this room who don't yet, don't yet have a relationship with you, that they would realize they don't have to do anything but just receive it. May they come to faith in you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.